the easiest thing to overlook in the beginning is it's just product. Like, does this actually solve the fundamental need that your students have? Or, you know, is your product a nice to have? Um, I think if you make your product a no-brainer and a must-have, um, then you know, you're in a really good spot. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. So today I had the pleasure of interviewing Austin Allred, who is a serial entrepreneur and growth marketer. Austin is the CEO and founder of Lambda School, which is a 30-week immersive program that gives you the tools and training you need to launch your new career, and it's all from the comfort of your own home. Now, Lambda School is very significant because they recently just raised $14 million from the likes of Google Ventures and a ton of other prominent investors. But the reason why all these investors and myself find Lambda School so interesting is because you don't have to pay anything upfront in order to take a course. They simply take the percentage of your salary for the two years following, and it's always capped at $30,000. Now, this is significant as so many people look to make a transition into more technical roles or more technical careers. They can finally do that now without having to worry or save up a ton of money in order to do so. As a college dropout, it's quite ironic how Austin ended up starting school. But his story is pretty incredible, and you'll hear just why. So Austin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Austin, when you are out and about, how do you introduce yourself to people? Uh, usually I don't. Uh, <laughs> but generally speaking, I would say, yeah, I'm the co-founder of Lambda School. And then I would let them say, oh, what's Lambda School? And then I would say, yeah, we train software engineers and data scientists um, in live online classes for free in exchange for a share of their in future income for two years. Wow, that's great. So before we get into, I guess, the great work that you guys are doing at Lambda School, um, which literally is the topic of conversation of so many of, uh, you know, conversations me and my friends have, is like, oh, well, guys, we're in the wrong career. We need to be engineers. Um, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about early life. So what was it like growing up? Yes, um, I grew up in Utah. Um, pretty small town, simple life, just hung out with friends and, um, you know, did, did our own thing. I, I got the internet as a birthday present when I turned eight. Um, <laughs> I just heard of this thing called the internet and thought it sounded cool. And, um, you know, that really plugged me into a new world from there, I guess. Um, so, so yeah, since then, um, yeah, we've really just been, I've really been living mostly on the internet. Wow. And so were your parents engineers or in that space or like, what, what did you know about the internet? Um, so my dad was an accountant, so he kind of used it. Um, but I mean, back then it, it's hard to remember. There wasn't very much happening. Um, it was a pretty, pretty new thing. Um, so I just thought it sounded interesting. Um, and you know, there, there, when you're in a smaller town, there are only so many ways you can plug into the outside world. So you can read books or magazines, but, 
it seemed seemed like something that was cool. Um, and so I got on it, got on some of the early bulletin boards, and was just hooked. Nice. And did you um, did you go to college? I couldn't find anywhere online if you studied. Um, yeah, it's because I, I went to college for a couple semesters and then ended up dropping out. Oh, um, went okay. to go work at another tech company. Okay, and then so what was it like dropping out of college? Did your what did your parents think about that? I think they saw it coming. I had always really not liked school, um, but I was just really frustrated with my whole college experience. I felt like. You know, it was expensive and I wasn't getting anything out of it and all sorts of, I was just very frustrated. Um, felt like I could have been doing a lot more. Um, so, yeah, um, I think they saw it coming. They were, they were hesitant. Um, it was funny. I was, I was married by the time I dropped out and my wife is a first generation college graduate ever. Wow. Um, so it didn't bother her family at all. They're like, oh yeah, no, very few people go to college. <laughs> But my parents were a little bit more skeptical. I, I think they assumed that it was a, a silly phase that I was going through and that I would figure it out and go back. But no one, no one would say that. Um, but, but yeah, it really was like I have nothing against learning. I have nothing against you know school. It just felt like very suboptimal use of my time, and I wanted to learn faster. And that's what we did. That's great. They must have loved the fact that you started a school as well. <laughs> it's like, hey, see, I went back to school. Um, so then you, I guess you ultimately, after that, you joined the founding team of Stubtopia, right? Uh, yes, that was actually before. Um, oh. So I started Stubtopia when I was about 18. Um, that was a, a ticket brokerage firm. So the longer story is you know, falling in love with the internet, got really used to, you know, buying stuff on eBay. Our family went to New York and we were going to go to a Broadway show. And so I looked at tickets on eBay and saw that they were really expensive. Um, one of the cool things about eBay is you can look at the historical prices for everything and basically did enough research to learn, you know, what tickets would sell for above retail and, and how that all worked. And then my brother and I started dumping a bunch of money into buying and selling tickets and it, it worked out really well. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. It, that's a, an industry that you have to, there are peaks and valleys and we, we hit it at the right time. Um, but, but yeah, Subtopia ended up making a few million dollars. Um, not for me, but for the, <laughs> for the rich uncle that I convinced to help us start it. Um, uh, did he, he invested? Yeah, so he he really set up the company, and then we just kind of let it um, hum. Um, so I, I was only there for the first six months of it, and then my brother took over. It was it was a really good experience to see what su setting up a successful business is actually like. Mm. And is it still around, or did you guys sell? Uh, no, I just so. You know, when I say there are peaks and valleys, like there were shows that would do really well for us. And then, um, you know, so it was just kind of it wasn't a big time commitment kind of thing. It would just run in the background. Um, and then when those shows died down, you know, kind of stopped buying shows and eventually it just kind of dwindled. Right. Um, so I don't the entity is probably still around, but right. no one is actively doing anything. We, we almost jumped back in when Hamilton came around. Oh, OK, because uh, I was pretty obviously going to do really well, but. 
um, everybody moved on to other things by then. Nice. And so then what did you do after that? Um, so I served uh, an LDS mission in eastern Ukraine for a couple of years. Um, then I came back to the U.S., got bored, moved to China for a while, came back to the U.S. again, got bored, um, moved to Silicon Valley, uh, lived in a car for a while, <laughs> and, then, and then ended up where we are today. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, let's backtrack a little bit there. So what were you doing in, what were you doing in Ukraine? Uh, so I served a, a mission for the LDS Church. Okay. Um, yeah. Nice. And how, how long were you doing that for? Uh, that was two years. Two years. And I guess during that time, were you not thinking about, you know, getting into business or, or anything like that? You were just like fo- solely focused on like serving God. Yep, that's, that's exactly right. That's great. And then what did that kind of like do for you, like spiritually, emotionally? Where did that take you? Um, I think the big thing for me is that it helped me learn to slow down and concentrate. Um, mm. So part of serving a mission is you don't use the computer, you don't use the internet, you don't use Facebook. Um, I think you have 30 hours or sorry, 30 minutes a week um, for the entire two years. Mm. So, you know, I learned to speak Russian fluently. I can you know pick up Tolstoy and read it. No problem. Wow. Um, I still have a little bit of an accent. And it's coming back stronger, unfortunately, because I haven't spoken it in a while. But um, it was really a time where I was learning to focus all of my time and effort and energy on something. Um, so yeah, that's um, that, that was the well one of the big things that I learned um, on the mission. The other thing that I learned was just to not really care what the people around me thought, because mm. um, I, I mean. The history of the former Soviet Union is fraught with a lot of, it, it's just a crazy, it was a crazy time and a crazy place. That was right before um, kind of war broke out and the Euromaidan stuff um, hit. Um, and basically before Russia invaded Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I learned to think very independently, to focus, to do my own thing. Um, and I think that stuff really matters when it comes to starting companies. Yeah, that's that's an awesome, incredible experience, and I think, I mean, especially within the startup community, you hear a you hear a lot about kind of founders going to the mountains or becoming monks for a few years. But I, I don't think I've heard, um, you know, someone take the Christian route, which is extremely refreshing and really interesting from that perspective. Um, I guess that whole experience almost ultimately shaped who you are now. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so then after going back and forth and traveling a few, a few other places, how did fit marketing come about? Yeah. So that was, I was living in a car in Silicon Valley. How, wait, hold, when you say, cause I, I read that somewhere that you read, you, you uh, lived in a car, like how long were you in the car for? And, and why were you in the car? <laughs> uh, I was there for about four months. Um, so basically I was living in Provo going to college Uh, really frustrated with the whole experience. Um, Wanted to get to Silicon Valley because I, well, I had someone who I was talking to when I was living in China basically said, you know, if you, if you really want to be happy, find, you know, if if you have some sense of what you want to do, 
do whatever it takes to get to the most exciting part of that. Mm. Just get there and figure it out. Um, and pretty clearly for me, it was tech that I was interested in. And so Silicon Valley was the epicenter. Mm. Um, the trade-off is that Silicon Valley is outrageously expensive and I had no money. So I think I had like 300 to $400 total. And so I, I had a car that I had already paid off. So I decided and found a blog of another guy named Kurt Horner who had similarly, I think he lived in a Honda. There's some other people, you know, bloggers that had lived in a van kind of thing. Um, so just, just kind of went out and started breaking my way into stuff. Mm. Um, and then eventually um, <clears throat> Fit was based in you know, Utah but they heard about me doing all this crazy stuff and knew that I was a good marketer and said, Hey, come back and work for us. Um, and I did. How did they know you were a good marketer? Um, I blogged about it a lot. Um, now that blog has turned into a book that I wrote. Um, but that was, that was my only tangible skill set um, was driving traffic, driving views, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, so yeah, basically decided to commercialize that and, and start doing it full time. Nice. And so then how, how did that roll go? What did you do there? Um, and how, and why did it end? Uh, yeah, it went great. Um, so I was working on building a company in on the side, um, but that doesn't pay the bills. Um, so yeah, I, Went there to work on the search engine optimization team, the SEO team, um, built out the social media team that didn't exist. Um, so it was basically, let's figure out how to hack all these different social networks and do really well for the companies we're, we're working for. It was, you know, it was a marketing agency. Mm. Um, and in the meantime, the, the company I was working on on the side got off the ground um, we raised some money for it and, and I quit. That was, that was the end of it. Um, still keep in touch with all the guys that fit really grateful for, for that time. But, um, yeah, it was time to start a new company. Which you did Grasswire. I did. Yep. So what was Grasswire? What, what did it do? Uh, Grasswire was an attempt to crowdsource the fact checking of the news, um, Basically, we created a newsroom-like environment as, a, as an internet product so everybody could find and research and research and fact-check um, all the news that was happening. And because it was crowdsourced, you would have experts in all these random little um, fields that would come in and help out just because they wanted the news to be accurate. Um, and that worked really well. We... Um, grew it into like it's a self-standing news product mm. um we had you know half a million visitors a month that would come get the news from Grasswire as opposed to the million other sources um but it was really difficult to either grow to the size that you would need to make money from ads mm. or to monetize without ads the, the news is just a brutal brutal business um so it ended up kind of dying Oh, which was sad. But then, was this a bootstrapped operation? No, we we'd raised a uh, little over half a million dollars from various VCs. Um, had built out a small team. We were in the middle of raising an A, and it kind of just fell apart. There wasn't enough inertia inertia to keep things going, um, oh. and that was it. Lessons learned. 
and then on to the next. Uh, yeah, big lesson learned was if you look at the leading company in an industry and they're struggling to make it and they've been around for 50 years and have total dominance, that's probably not the best industry to start a startup. In. <laughs> um, which, you know, and you know, really I wanted to get close to money after that. Um, the news is like five steps um, removed from any revenue source at most, most times. Um, so I wanted to get closer to money and understand finance and all that stuff. Um, and that's why I ended up at LendUp. Nice. I mean, LendUp, of course, you, you went there as a senior growth manager, right? Uh-huh. And like, what was the stage they were at when you joined? Yeah, they were, I mean, they had product market fit. They were growing pretty quickly. Um, and I was part of that growth. So it was probably, oh man. Um, and they do, and they're the, they're the, they're the uh, payday loans, right? Yeah, they're, they're trying to kill payday loans, basically, and replace it with a better product, um, which really the key to that is figuring out who you can lend to and who you cannot lend to, um, because at the general default rate that payday loans have, there's just no way to make money with a reasonable APR. Mm. Uh, so they're trying to fix that, um, which is hard. Um, but I was employee number 80 or something like that, between 80 and 100, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, I th they were around 200, 250 when I left a couple years later. Um, so it was pretty insane growth. Um, and it was, it was a fun to be a part of that. And what were common, I guess, what was some of the main tactics you used for growth? Um, and we're going to do a segment on growth and I'm going to get your insight and perspective on marketing in general, but it'll be interesting to know from a tangible perspective and from a practical perspective, some of the strategies you use for LendUp. Yeah. So, so we had a, about a 12 person growth team. Um, a couple people were over direct mail. Um, a couple people were over, um, affiliates and partnerships. Um, my channels ran, most of the generic online stuff, so SEO, paid search, um, and then we we played a lot with the kind of experimental channels that we hadn't nailed down yet. So everything from billboards to one of the the guys um, was running TV, um, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and most of the channels I didn't figure out. There are other people that had had nailed. Um, most of my time was spent in SEO, trying to figure out social, um, and then my team ran paid search. Nice. And from, a, I guess, what was their biggest acquisition channel, if you remember? Um, organic. Oh, organic wow. and direct mail were the two biggest. I think that's probably true of most lenders. Organic and direct mail. Interesting. And so, so you do just over a year there, um, things were going well, and then I guess you came up with this idea of a school. Yep, that, that's exactly right. So were you thinking about the school the whole time? Like, where did this idea come from? Um, I mean, the, the real idea came from when I saw, you know, so bef when I was working at Grasswire, we were running that out of kind of the middle of nowhere in Utah, by the town um, where my in-laws are from, kind of by their farm. Um, it's 
four to 6,000 people, depending on when you're looking at the data. Um, and just kind of realizing the differences in opportunity and earning power that are in those different places. Mm. Um, and realizing that, you know, the folks in that town, there, there was really no shot of them becoming a software engineer. There are no schools that taught it. They would have to move somewhere else and pay $15,000. And that just seemed like too big of a hill to climb for most people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Originally, the idea was just, hey, let's you know, create a code school and make it really good and put it online. And then in doing that, we realized the number one reason people aren't going to code schools is because it's just too risky. It's risky from a financial aspect. It's risky from having to move and putting your life on hold um, and started figuring out how to de-risk it for people, um, which is how we ended up at the you know, free upfront pay nothing until you're hired making more than 50 50k model that is honestly it's when i saw this i was like this has to be the best program on the internet <laughs> i mean because like i said um a few friends of mine were literally having the discussion and it was like i want to change careers or i would love to become a programmer i have no background in programming but, you know, some of these schools online, they look great or some of these boot camps, but there's so much money up front. And just the idea of having to save and get that just puts you in a, a strange conundrum. Right. So I guess was it always free? Was the idea for this to always make it free from the beginning or did you start off charging and then switch the model? I mean, we, we just really started listening to the customers and trying to figure out what would work for them. Um, we started out, so in our, our second cohort, um, which um, turned out to be a lot bigger than we, we thought it was going to be, we just emailed everybody and said, hey, it sounds like, I mean, we we're always emailing people trying to figure out what was going on. Um, and basically they said, look, I would love to participate, but I don't have you know $10,000. Mm. So we sent out an email and said, look, if you'll pay us $1,000 up front um, so that we know that you're committed, we can cover the rest until you get a job that pays more than 50K. And we had like 150 people say, okay, I'm in. And we're like, whoa, whoa, actually, I'm <laughs> in. Yeah. Um, so that made us kind of go back to the, the drawing board and figure out what it would look like from first principles. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, um, that's, and you know, we gradually, well, I guess not so gradually. Um, we basically said, you know what, if we're going to do a thousand dollars up front, what would happen if we just opened up the floodgates? Mm. Um, maybe it won't work to do free up front. Maybe we'll have to be, figure out how to be more selective. Um, and we were right. It, it wasn't working initially until we figured out how to filter for the more serious, dedicated folks. Um, but, but yeah, it, it worked really well. Yeah, no, that's great. And so then, so how did you start? I mean, I know you, you ended up doing Y Combinator. Um, at the time of, at the point of joining Y Combinator, were you, did you have customers? How big was the team? Like, what was the, like, talk to me about the progress. Yeah, when we, when we joined YC, it was me and my co-founder. Um, the school was, was running. It was kind of three months long, paid up front. Um, and then we had a couple people that we had let in on $1,000 a month. And then one person that we had let in um, free until you're hired. I mean, we couldn't we couldn't support much of that in the early days, right? Mm. Um, and just you know, 
the the YC money gave us enough of a cushion, even though it was only one hundred twenty thousand dollars to to hire another person and to try the free upfront thing. Right. Um, and we so we said, you know, we feel like it needs to be longer than three months. Let's make it six months. Let's actually teach computer science because if we're going to get people hired with any level of certainty, that's what it will take. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, started started doing that, and it, it's been a similar model since. We've still made it a little bit longer, um, but but yeah, that's that's basically it. And this is is this a full time? I mean, I know it, the whole idea is that it's remote working. Um, so how does the program work over the 30 weeks? Uh, yeah, basically it's, it, yeah, it's full time. So the 30 week program is, is full time, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific. Um, it's synchronous, it's live, it's interactive. It's, you know, like going to a school all day, but not having to go to a physical location. Mm. We also have a part time program that's just over a year long and that's, Monday through Thursday for three hours, and then Saturday for three hours. Um, so it's it's a big time commitment. Yeah, and, you know it's a big commitment all around. We spend a ton of money training these students. They spend a lot of time learning. Um, yeah, it all. It, it's a big it's a big deal to switch careers. Yeah, it's huge. And so I know you guys have raised recently your Series A, 14 million, which is amazing. Congratulations. You have some of the biggest names as investors from Stripe to Google Ventures. Like how did this, how did that come about? Uh, yeah, so we weren't looking at raising a Series A that quickly. Um, we just closed a seed round. I, well, I guess I'll, the, you know, we announced the Series A last month. We actually closed it in like April. Um, so there's kind of a six month delay between closing it and announcing it, Mm -hmm. but really it, it came down to, you know, we met a few people that were really interested, um, including Patrick Collison and the partner at GV and, and some other folks, um, that we didn't end up taking money from. Um, and we were like, look, there's still a lot to prove out here. You know, we've only had at the time we'd only had seven or eight students hired. Mm. Um, we're still figuring out the model, but they were like, you know what? We think that you know, you'll figure it out. So let's just, instead of waiting for six months, let's do a series A now so you can start to grow faster. Wow. Um, instead of, you know, waiting to burn down the 4 million you have or try to turn it around at a really small scale. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a, I'm sure it will go down as among the easiest series A's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was nice. Yeah. And so what are the plans with the money? I mean, what do you guys plan to do? I mean, the first thing is just grow. Um, it costs us a lot of money to train students. And mm-hmm. if you only have a couple million dollars in the bank, your ability to grow is kind of hamstringed by that. Mm-hmm. Now we don't have the same constraints. Um, so we've added more courses. We've added iOS, Android, data science. Um, and then we're starting to grow internationally as well. So next year we'll be in uh, the UK. Um, well, the the EU generally, we'll see whether or not we have to call out the UK as separate. From the <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, we'll we'll be in Europe. Um, still free up front. We're still working out all the details, but um, similar model, just in Europe. Nice. So I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk a bit more about, I guess, marketing from a startup perspective. I mean, obviously, you've got your book, The Secret Source. Um, it's very, you know 
well-regarded book by many kind of hackers and growth marketers. So what goes into creating like a strong marketing strategy? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, it's really figuring out exactly who your customer is, exactly what they want, exactly what they need. Um, and as a result of that, you know, where they will gather what their thought process is like. So I think the most important part is definitely, you know, the, the discovery. And I think that if you're going to be a successful growth marketer, there's a pretty good chance that that process of discovery will change the product itself. It'll change what you're offering. Mm. So the reason Lambda School is so successful is, you know, we can be the best code school at marketing, but that doesn't really matter unless we figure out what the students actually need, which is to not pay until they get a job. Mm. And then there's a whole, you know, you really have to have the entire organization built around making that possible because it is not easy to say, Hey, it's free until you get a job. Um, so I, I think the best, you know, growth marketers will, will have some say over the product and they'll be able to work with the rest of the team, um, in order to make whatever needs to happen, happen. Yeah. And where have you seen most entrepreneurs make mistakes when it comes to approaching marketing or getting the word out about their product, specifically technology products? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I like to say that our job as Lambda School on the growth side is really easy because we're competing against products that just, I mean, they, they don't have the same, um, I mean, they, they don't have the same offering, right? It's really difficult when one school is saying, hey, we know that this works. You don't have to move anywhere. We'll provide everything free until you get a job and then you pay us back. And the other one is saying, you know, take out a loan and pay us $20,000 and we'll hope it works out on the other side. Mm. Um, it's just really difficult to compete against. So I, the, you know, I, I like to say that the, the big secret of how you become the best growth marketer is you attach yourself to the best product. Um, so, you know, being a growth marketer at Facebook today is really freaking easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's like, hey, we have all of your friends on this platform. Do you want to see what your friends are doing and talk to your friends? Then sign up and it's free. That's that's not a hard sell. Mm. So, so yeah. And I, I know you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, raising the 40 million was fairly straightforward. But I know it wasn't a main focus of yours, but when do you think is a good time for entrepreneurs and startups to kind of consider raising funding? Um, I'll sound a little bit hypocritical here because generally speaking, the my advice is to delay that as much as you can. Mm. Um, the reason we could raise so easily at that point was because we didn't really need to. Um, we could have figured it out and we could have gotten to profitability without raising based on you know the success that we are seeing. Um, so it's, it's really easy to convince an investor to give you money when it's, hey, look, we want to pour fuel on this fire that's already working and make it really big. Mm. Um, and I've, in fact, I regard that as a mistake from the first company that we didn't really have a product that made sense yet um, in the broader marketplace. And we said, you know, we'll, we'll take some money and then we'll figure it out which is 
the reverse of the way I think you should do things, which is figuring it out and then raising money. Figuring it out. But sometimes, you know, I mean, before you done your Series A, you did have, you said you had a seed round closed at $4 million. Uh-huh. And that was the same story. We By the time we had closed the seed round, we'd done like a quarter million dollars in revenue. Wow. And it was just me and my co-founder. Um, so we could have figured out how to make it work. It just would have been really slow. Yeah. And um, that quarter million in revenue, was that accrued in terms of what you foresaw coming back to you once the students had gotten their jobs? Or was that actual quarter of a million dollars in the bank? That was cash, cash. Cash, cash. Okay. Wow, that's great. So, yeah. And who was teaching the courses? Or who is teaching the courses? Uh, well, back then it was my co-founder would teach 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. He would teach the full-time class in the morning and then um, he would teach our free class in for an hour and then he would teach the part-time class in the evenings. So, wow. Um, so that was intense. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean it almost killed him. Wow. Um, but – <laughs> I think it was worth it. Well, we'll find out. But <laughs> so so far, so good, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, now now he doesn't teach anymore. We've got a team of twenty four full time instructors. Wow. So we're we're in a different place. Nice. And what are you guys doing to, I guess, stand out? I mean, I know the main USP of what you guys do is the fact that you know you don't have to pay that much up front. Are you worried about places like General Assembly or Flat Iron School? Um, jumping in and doing something similar? Um, I think not really. I mean, I think they'll do it at a small scale, mm. but it's just a very different thing to run a school that doesn't get paid unless and until students get hired than it is. Like, it's very difficult to just tack that on to an existing school. They're not built in a way to manage or handle that. Um, so there's there's a lot that has to happen um, for that to be feasible, mm. and frankly, we're still figuring some of it out. Um, I'm sure there will be other entrants into the market, but I think if there are, they will underestimate how difficult it is to make work. Yeah. Um, at a certain point, it's just hard, right? Mm. Um, so so we'll see. I'm sure there will be other people adopting the model and trying to figure it out yeah, alongside no, I- us. No, I agree. And I think it could be more of a validation of the approach as well, because I think if there are more people in the market, ultimately there is a skills shortage of engineers anyway. So it can only be, I guess, good in that sense, right? Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I mean, I consider us, you know, I look at the electric vehicle market and, you know, Tesla isn't in dire straits because of the Chevy Bolt. It's just, building electric cars and making them available is difficult. So the more people in the market, it's not necessarily a bad thing for, for anybody. Yeah. I mean, you've worked with a number of entrepreneurs and you founded your own company as well. I mean, what are some of the things, what's the one thing, I guess, that you think most entrepreneurs overlook in the beginning? Um, I mean, the, I guess the successful ones probably don't overlook anything. I think, yeah. um, the easiest thing to overlook in the beginning is it's just product. Like, does this actually solve the fundamental need that your students have? Or, you know, is your product a nice to have? Um, I think if you make your product a no-brainer and a must-have, 
um, then yeah, you're in a really good spot. towards wrapping up now Stan, and ask a few rapid fire questions um so what has or who has been your biggest inspiration to date oh man probably i mean this will probably sound cliche but jeff bezos or elon musk are the two <laughs> that i look up to the most wow um and they're Either they're very successful as a result, or I look up to them because they're very successful. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure which one it is. Yeah. Um, but I think those are those guys think very long term. They're looking ten years down the road and making things work today for what they need to be to make ten years down the road possible. Um, and that's what I aspire to, despite being much earlier stage and not a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's your favorite podcast? Oh man, that's a good question. Let's see. Favorite podcast. I like uh, Conversations with Tyler, the podcast by Tyler Cowen, the, the Economist mm. um, at George Mason. Um, that's probably my favorite. Okay. Favorite blog other than your own? <laughs> blog? It's got to be Slight Star Codex. Okay. Favorite book? Favorite book of all time is Lame as Rob. By Victor Hugo. What's that about? Um, that's about uh, it's a very long story. Um, in the time around the French Revolution, um, and just it's a story of like twelve different characters that interweave with each other. It's, it's fiction, mm. uh, but just I think Victor Hugo is an incredible writer, and the way he explains the human condition and how humans work with each other and it's just fascinating mm, i'm gonna check that out uh favorite instagram account uh, i'm not a big instagram user nah. my wife's she always posts pictures of our kids <laughs> you're more of a twitter follower i'm more of a twitter user obviously as i'm I, definitely a twitter you are like i said yeah. you've got some of the best quotes in the game right now <laughs> do, you don't come up with all of those on your own do you <laughs> Oh yeah, it's all you straight off the top of the dome. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's that's the key to Twitter is not don't think about it, just throw it out there and see. Um, at, a, at a certain follower account, that probably becomes dangerous, but I'm not there yet. So. <laughs> uh, what do you wish you could do that you currently can't do? Oh man, um, right now, I wish I understood either regulations better or capital markets better. Um, those are very specific to what I need right now. <laughs> um, but yeah. Okay. Interesting. Uh, what advice would you give to your 21 year old self? Um, get started. Cause I don't see any way that my 21 year old self would avoid all of the issues that, my 29 year old self is running into so just start running into them now and f figuring it out mm. it's unavoidable yeah that's good if you had a hundred dollars in your favorite city what would you spend it on food <laughs> fair uh what's the one thing startups should ignore in the early days 
Um, people that don't matter. Um, so investors that don't know what they're talking about, journalists that don't know what they're talking about, basically anybody other than your customer that is the only person you actually need to make happy. Mm. If you can make your customers happy enough, investors will be there. Um, so just focus all of your time on customers. Mm. Do you think it's quite hard for founders to discern between what investors or journalists to ignore and what ones to consider? Because not all advisors get advice, right? Yeah, I think I think that's definitely hard. Um, I think on average, it, it's very rare that a journal, sorry, uh, uh, in an investor actually understands your company Mm. and you have to recognize that the advice that they are giving you comes from the very limited understanding of your company that they have. Mm. Um, so there are things that you should listen to them a lot on, like what is the fundraising market? What's, you know, they, they understand that stuff backwards and forwards. They're always talking to other investors. They know what it takes to raise a round, generally speaking. Um, but the stuff that you should be wary if you're listening to investors on is stuff like product roadmap. Mm. Um, you know, especially if, you're, if your investors ever contradict something your customer is saying, the customer is probably right. So just, and especially like, I think it's also difficult to take seriously or to, it's, it's easy to over index to what random people are saying that don't understand your customer. Um, so for example, when we said, Hey, we're launching in the UK, my inbox was full of people saying, Hey, actually your model is not going to work in the UK because the UK already has, you know, cheap university, blah, blah, blah. But the other half of my inbox was people saying, Oh, I'm so glad you're coming to the UK. How can I apply? I'm ready to start today. Mm. So I think people pay too much attention to macroeconomic trends. They don't understand instead of, you know, what is the decision like at the customer level and what are they actually basing their decisions off of Mm. so you know the uk um there's definitely you know there it's cheaper to go to university in the uk than it is in the us yeah but it's still you know three to four years long and that's a long time yeah so anyway there be careful who you listen to basically yeah that's good What's your vision for the company? Where do you see your company in five, ten years? Um, my vision for five, ten years from now is that we have, you know, we're teaching a, a dozen different things. So not just software. Um, we have a nursing school. We have a finance school. We have whatever else. You come to us. You show us that you're capable and interested. Um, and then we find the perfect place for you to, to go to and take care of the rest. So we can help cover stuff like, um, you know, finances and, you know, your, your day-to-day living costs. And we can still do it all risk-free. That's my ultimate, ultimate goal, um, which will be difficult, but I think it's possible. That's great. Do you think your time... Um, working, I guess, in, in the two-year ministry, I know we spoke about this earlier, has set the tone for the company. And do you think there's kind of like another personal message, um, mission or message behind the fact that you want to give ultimately like a free education up front? 
Um, I think the, the couple things that I took away from the mission are that, you know, I am so by almost every measure, like worldly measure, I'm more successful than anybody I'd met in Ukraine. Mm. But that was largely a result of the circumstances I was born into. They're just as smart, just as capable, have all of the same ambition and drive and hustle um, as I did. But I am relatively rich because I'm an American is Mm. what it comes down to. Mm. Um, And I think you can extrapolate that within the United States as well, that a lot of what I have, I have just because I won the ovarian lottery, as Warren Mm. Buffett likes to say. Mm. Um, The other thing that I took away was that people can do really hard things. Um, And even things that seem difficult or impossible are actually usually possible. People just don't focus on them in the right way. Um, So it's pretty rare for an American to learn to speak Russian fluently. Yeah. But it's not impossible. You just have to put in the work. Um, And I think the, one of the other things I learned was how important it is to have have, um, the right guardrails in place to help you learn what you need to learn, the right mentors available. Mm. Um, And yeah, some, some stuff like that. Um, But, but yeah, I think the, the mission was very, very, I mean, it drives a lot of my thinking. And you know, specifically the the missionary training center where we learned the basics of speaking Russian. Um, it's pretty world renowned language learning institute, and a lot of our pedagogy is based off of that today. Mm. That's awesome, Austin. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was awesome having you on. If people want to find you, where can they get in contact with you? Um, Twitter is probably the easiest. I'm Austin Allred with Austin with an E on Twitter. Um, and then my email address is Austin at LambdaSchool.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Just want to say another huge thank you to Austin for coming on the show and responding to my tweet in the first place. Uh, We actually connected on Twitter as he's tweeted that he wants to start doing more podcasts. So thanks for coming on and following through. As always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and leave a review on the Apple Podcasting app. They honestly do go a long way. Okay, until next time, guys, keep grinding.